Jesus, thank you that you are the victor in all. And Lord, help us to understand your word and move in faith, not fear. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, good to see all of you, 945. Thank you for being here. Those of you in the middle who sit in the middle section, bigger crowns in heaven, okay? <laughs> it's a biblical truth. Don't argue with me. Sitting in the middle makes the baby Jesus happy. So thank you. Um, the, the sound on our the TV that my wife and I have doesn't always work. So whenever we watch a DVD, it always has sound. But when we're watching baseball or football or something like that, sometimes we have sound and sometimes we don't. And we can't figure out what makes it that way at all. So when there's no sound, we do what every tech-savvy person would do. We turn it off and then turn it back on again, right? Because that fixes everything, right? And some of you are nudging your spouse. So yeah. If that doesn't work, then we just jiggle a cord or two. And if that doesn't work, we just kind of give in to despair and watch the game with no sound, which is really kind of weird. Now, there's probably a way to fix it. You know, I'm sure we could call or something like that. But we just, we just sort of live with it, right? Helpless victims, overwhelmed by the complexity of the technology. Right? It's really quite unfair. I blame my parents. Someone has to be blamed, so I blame them, right? Are there things in your life that are like that you just kind of live with? Times when you feel paralyzed by circumstances? School or my job is so overwhelming, I just feel trapped. Or, or, or that colleague at work or that kid at school is making my life miserable and I don't know what to do about it, I'm just kind of stuck. You know, my marriage isn't that great, but I don't know, I guess I'll just live with it. A broken relationship and you're not sure that the pain is ever going to go away. Or maybe it's just stuff in the news. Shootings, racial tensions, terrorism, all kinds of stuff. And you go, oh, man, I it is so overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. And maybe, maybe, maybe it's not even a bad thing. Maybe it's a good thing. It just feels bigger than you. Some opportunity, and you don't know how you're going to tackle it. Or you think, man, I, I, don't know, I don't know if I have what it takes to raise these kids or to succeed in school or in my job. Where do you feel, to quote the musical Hamilton, outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned? Some people feel that way all of the time, and I think all of us feel that way at least some of the time. And that's the issue in the story that Dana just read, David and Goliath, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And we even use it as a metaphor for the underdog winning in the face of overwhelming odds. But as, Mal as writer Malcolm Gladwell points out, we have read this story wrong forever. We have read this story wrong forever. It is not the underdog story that we think it is, and I'll talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. What it does show is that the giants that sometimes paralyze us, whether it's in our individual lives or corporately what we face as a nation, those giants aren't nearly as big as we think they are, and we are not nearly the underdogs that we imagine ourselves to be. We're doing a sermon series called Resilient Pursuit. How can we be resilient people? who relentlessly pursue God's revival of all things in faith and courage. And this story gives us some clues. And all my points today are going to start with the letter R, as in resilient, to help us remember. And the setting is that Israel and the Philistines are at war. And for 40 days, Goliath, who is very tall, comes out and he taunts the Israelites. And he says, send someone to fight me, and if you win, we'll all be your slaves. But if I win, you all have to be our slaves. So what he's proposing is single combat, which was practiced at the time. 
And, you know, the idea was that gods determine the outcome of battles anyway, so you just have two representatives fight it out to see which side the god favors. It's very efficient, actually. I think the whole world should adopt it, right? Like, you politicians want a war? All right, you have at it, you know. Feel free to succeed, right? Um, and, and, and it says that on, so Goliath is taunting them, and it says, the text says that on hearing the Philistines' words, King Saul, okay, the king, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified, and they all fled from him in great fear. Brave, brave boys, you know, run away. And this demonstrates my first point, and that is to be resilient pursuers of God's revival of all things, we have to refuse a victim mentality. See, the Israelites here are overwhelmed by Goliath. And their attitude is, there's nothing we can do, man. You see how big this guy is? We are just victims, helpless, like Dudley in his television set, right? And yes, they are victims of Philistine aggression. Absolutely, they are victims of Philistine aggression. But there's a difference between being a victim and having a victim mentality. See, we may be victims. Our parents may indeed have hurt us. Someone may have indeed treated you very unjustly and unfairly. There are real systems of racial and social injustice in our world and in our country. We may be victims, but we don't have to live with a victim mentality. We can live with a victor's mentality. Because even in the worst of situations, we always have some sphere that we can control, even if it's just our attitude in how we respond. And I'll give you an example toward the end of the sermon. The text says, now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out to defy Israel? The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. In other words, someone really ought to do something about this guy. <laughs> okay, okay, you're the king and the army? Like, aren't you the guys who are supposed to do something about this? And do you ever respond this way or think these things? You know, man, somebody really ought to fix this country. Somebody really ought to do something about that bully at school. Somebody really ought to change the corporate culture in my office. Somebody really ought to do something about my spouse, right? Victim mentality. Somebody's got to fix my situation. I'm powerless. And all of us at various points succumb to a victim mentality. I know I sometimes do. We all do it sometimes. My teacher, man, they oppress me. That department over there and my work, they, they're the problem. They're just blocking everything I do. They're just making my life miserable. My parents, my parents, man, it's all their fault, you know, because if it's not one thing, it's your mother. And again, all of that may be true. All of it may be true, but there's always something we still control, even if it's just our attitude. This summer, my youngest daughter went on like a pun rampage, right? Like she was just making puns all the time, constantly, constantly. Like at one point, my son said, I wonder what it's like to live in an igloo. My daughter said, it'd be isolating. <laughs> I mean, it just was constant, like weeks on end, one after the other. So finally, I said, okay, that's enough. Stop it. No more puns. Immediately, she said, maybe I should be punished. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. Now, I could have gotten mad or disciplined her in that moment or maybe punted it to her mother, right? Instead, what? That was brilliant. Instead, I kind of, I adjusted my attitude. I changed my attitude a little bit because that's the thing I can control. I thought, you know what? You know, actually, I was kind of good, right? So I just enjoyed her fabulous verbal dexterity. We can at least control our attitudes. See, there are two problems with the victim mentality. The first problem is a victim needs a villain. And yeah, there are truly horrible people in our world. There are. 
But most, in most of our victim scenarios, everyone involved has kind of both good and bad motives. But a victim mentality requires that someone's got to be a villain. Because I'm a victim, so you, you, you got to be a villain. I'm going to put you into that narrative, man. Because I got my little victim mentality thing going on here. In the church I worked at in California, I did not get along with one of the business managers we had that worked there for a while. He had all these rules and all these procedures, and I was the college pastor, and I thought they were stupid, and he you know, just drove me nuts, and it felt like he was blocking everything I was trying to do. And I complained, man. He's a bully. I can't do anything because of him. It's just awful. I complained to my staff. I complained to my friends. I complained to God. I complained to my wife. Turned out that wasn't very helpful. I complained to my boss. You know what that turkey said? When I complained to my boss, he said, well, why don't you go talk to him? Oh, stop being so reasonable, right? Like, you're the boss. You fix it. I'm the victim. You fix it, right? So I went. I talked to the business manager. Turned out he had some good reasons for some of those rules. Not all of the rules, but he had some good reasons for some of those rules. And he got to understand my heart better. And we kind of started to work it out. He wasn't a villain. I wasn't a victim. I had this sphere of influence called go talk to him. And we started to work it out and started to understand each other a little bit better. The second problem with a victim mentality is it's disempowering. You know, the person who hates how out of shape they are, but they don't do anything about it. The, the person who's tired of always being broke, but they don't even think about getting a different job or doing something like we have here, like Financial Peace University. Someone needs to fix my situation disempowers us. I read a while back about a, a high school student who took her younger sister shopping for clothes, and she was appalled by how sexualized the clothes were, even for really young girls. And instead of saying, you know, someone ought to do something about this, so this high school student, about 17 years old at the time, incidentally about the same age as David in this story, well, she started a company of her own that sells modest clothing and underwear for, for younger girls. And it's growing really rapidly. Well, she didn't say, I'm only 17. I'm not old enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough. She did something about it. Okay, now right now if you're sitting there going, man, I haven't started a company this week, I'm a loser, I suck, <laughs> right? Like, stop it, Eastsider, stop it. No, that's not the point, the point, that's not the point. The point is this, what, you know, we always have some sphere of control. So what are the giants you're just living with? Refuse the victim mentality. Second R, reject what Pastor Tim Keller calls counterfeit courage that is based on the weapons of this world. Text says, Goliath wore a coat of armor weighing 5,000 shekels, that's 125 pounds, and his spear was iron. Okay, at this point, the Israelites are just coming out of the Bronze Age, so iron is very rare. So in other words, Goliath is high tech. He had all the weapons that they thought, the Israelites thought they needed to win. Weapons of this world. In fact, the reason they chose Saul as their king is because he was taller than everyone else. See, they're thinking, so we're facing a giant, so let's go get ourselves our own giant. But where is their giant? Back in the tent, cowering in fear. The weapons of this world will fail us. Before David goes to fight Goliath, it says that Saul dressed David in Saul's own tunic. He put a coat of armor on. David fastened on his sword, tried walking around. I can't go in these. He said, I'm not used to them. So he took them off. That is such a great image of how we try to clothe ourselves with the weapons of this world to increase our power, increase our bravado, right? Uh, to give us some sense of counterfeit courage, our grade point average, the title on our business card, the kind of house we live in, how popular we are. But those things sometimes get in the way. See, David was a shepherd. He knew how to use a sling and a stone. 
But to do that, you got to move quickly. And Saul's armor only weighed him down. So David casts off Saul's armor, and he charges towards Goliath, and he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, weapons of this world, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, spiritual power. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. That's good stuff. Like, that's good stuff. Where are you relying on Saul's armor? To give you counterfeit courage. Refuse it. And do what David does here, and it's the third R, and that is rely on Jesus. The reason Saul is afraid is because he's distant from God. See, the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear, and God is perfect love. So the closer we get to God, the smaller that giant begins to seem in contrast to God. David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David sees the issues more clearly than Saul. He sees that what is at stake is the inbreaking of God's justice, his good news for the poor, his setting at liberty all those who are oppressed. All of that is at stake, and David knows that God's purposes cannot ultimately be stopped. See, David is not the hero here. God is. You know, we read this story and we think, oh man, I got to be like David. I got to be like David. No, we're not David. We're not David. You know who we are? We're the Israelites cowering in the tent. David fights the battle for us. And in this story, David's victory counts for his whole people. Does that remind you of anyone? You're in a church. Correct answer is Jesus. Always safe answer. (laughs) God, Jesus, Bible. Always one of those, right? And in this story, David's victory counts for his whole people. See, David foreshadows Jesus, who is David's descendant. When the weapons of this world, suffering, death, power, oppression, were all hurled at Jesus, he did his ultimate judo move and used the thing intended to destroy him to cancel the debt of our sin and conquer death by rising again from the grave. That's why it's the ultimate victory. The weapons of this world cannot ultimately defeat God's purposes. Now, that doesn't mean the bad things won't happen. See, that's the American Christian counterfeit courage, right? The American Christian thing is, I'm a Christian, nothing bad's going to happen to me. Oh, tell that to Jesus. He got crucified. No, no, no. Bad things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. It just means that because of the cross, God will make even our suffering the eventual servant of our joy. It's like the old phrase, right? This too shall pass. It may pass like a kidney stone, but it will pass. After David strikes Goliath with a, with a stone and he falls down, David took the Philistine sword, the Philistine sword, not his own, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. The sword meant to destroy, David destroys Goliath instead. The cross meant to destroy, Jesus destroys Satan's plans instead. The thing meant to destroy you will be an eventual servant of your joy. It is all about perspective. Goliath looks big until you set him next to Jesus. You all know I am a diehard Mariners fan. I love the Mariners. Still hoping for that wild card spot this year. Still hoping for it. And I love the Mariners. And I, but I also make a lot of fun of them. For all the joking I do about the Mariners, there's a lot of good things that you can say about them. So, for instance, the Mariners have never lost a game in the World Series. <laughs> They've never been, but that's not the point. They have never lost a game. Not all teams can say that, right? See, it's always a matter of perspective. Reject the victim mentality Refuse false courage, rely on Jesus, and fourth, realize the strength that is already in you. Writer Malcolm Gladwell points out that we have read this story wrong forever. 
And he says that back then there were three kinds of fighters. Infantry, which were heavily armored foot soldiers. Cavalry, soldiers on horses. And slingers, not slingshots, the kind that got me in trouble as a kid. But these slings that you'd spin and release baseball-sized rocks at about 100 miles an hour. And it was like a game of rock, paper, scissors. You, know, you all know that game, right? Rock beats scissors, scissors beats paper, paper beats rock. They cancel each other out. Well, back then, back then, infantry would eventually beat cavalry because they had long spears that they could get the horse and rider with. Cavalry would eventually beat slingers because horses were too fast for the slingers to aim. But slingers would eventually beat infantry because a soldier weighed down by massive armor is a sitting duck for a slinger. Goliath was infantry. David was a slinger. Gladwell says that Goliath had as much of a chance against David as a Bronze Age warrior against a 45 caliber pistol. You see, David is not the underdog in this story. Goliath is. Goliath is the underdog. And the miracle is not that David won. It's that God helped David see the thing that nobody else could see. The thing that made Goliath intimidating also made him vulnerable. His armor weighed him down. His height made him a visible target. His pride of being such a good warrior blinded him to the danger that he was in. No, 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 no. David was not the underdog. Goliath was. Goliath says to David, uh, come here and I'll give you your flesh to the wild animals. Because that's how Goliath talked. And he says, come here, because he can't get to David because of his armor. Okay, only an idiot would do it, right? But that's what giants always do. They want us to fight them on their own terms instead of God's. But instead, what David does is he picks up five stones and he slings away. See, the minute David cast off Saul's armor, turned to the strength already inside of him that he had, and relied on Jesus, the minute David did that, Goliath was a dead man walking. Because slingers beat infantry. Giants are not as big as they seem, and we are not the underdogs that we think we are. We are the odds-on favor to win when we rely on Jesus. And David didn't win in spite of his weakness. He won because of it. His lack of armor meant he could outmaneuver Goliath. Jesus didn't win because of his strength. He won because of his weakness, which moved, proved more powerful than anything else, because Jesus beats the devil in the long run every single time. Reject victim mentality. Refuse counterfeit courage. Rely on Jesus. Realize the strength already within you. And finally, just as a PS, remember there will be future challenges. After this great victory, David's not done. Very next chapter, King Saul gets jealous and tried to kill David, and David spends the next few years of his life running away from King Saul. That's why it's significant that David grabbed five stones. He only needed one, but he was prepared to persevere. At every new level, you meet a new devil. But the God who was faithful before will be faithful again, and we are not helpless underdogs. Not helpless against the giants we face in our personal lives or corporately as a culture. We can push back on the giants of racism and fear and division and poverty and loneliness and terror. We can push back on that. So, for example, a couple of opportunities. You could go to the Eastside Academy auction on October 22nd and support this amazing ministry that helps youth conquer their giants. They change lives. I really hope you go and support them. There's the two things I mentioned last week, Andrew's House, which aims to provide housing for homeless youth. Youth do not have to be perpetual victims of circumstances often beyond their control. We can push back on that. 
We're focusing on 18 to 25-year-olds who have aged out of foster care but still need a couple more tools to stand on their own. Most underserved homeless population. Best way to help them is to bring them into our homes where they can experience community and family. And they'll be vetted to make sure that they're not a threat to anyone or themselves and that they're motivated to change their situation. And we're looking for just a few families to, host, to do this for three months on a trial basis that will help us know how we can expand the program. Then there's the other thing we're doing this fall, and that is earthquake preparation. And I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, but see, that, all that press about a 9-0 earthquake has caused a lot of fear, and fear is a spiritual issue. But it turns out we are not helpless victims even in the face of a massive earthquake, right? Even if it doesn't happen for another 100 years, and hopefully it doesn't, but even if it does, what if we all had, what if every Christian in King County had enough supplies not just for themselves but to share with their neighbors? How would that show the love of Jesus? What if we did what the city is asking us to do and talk to our neighbors so whole neighborhoods could be prepared? What a great opportunity to have conversations and build community. So on September 21st and October 5th, we're going to have meetings here to help us be prepared, not just for ourselves, but to help others. And there's information on all of that in the lobby. I'll close with, I'll close with this. A man in our church recently, a couple weeks ago, told me that his mother-in-law had to have her leg amputated because of cancer. And it's so radical, she won't be able to even have a prosthesis. And I, I, man, I cannot imagine the pain and the loss, the sense of fear in that. But, she, but her attitude, she is handling it way better than I would handle it. Her attitude is inspiring. She's acknowledging the real pain. She's not being a Pollyanna. No, this is bad, right? But she's also facing it with faith, not fear, and a wonderful sense of humor. So I talked to her on Wednesday, and, and I asked, first question I asked is, how are you doing? And she said, actually, I'm doing great. And they just kind of slipped out, and I said, why? <laughs> this is why I don't do pastoral care, okay? <laughs> this is why we have Dana, different gifts, right? So I kind of botched that, and she laughed, and she said, well, I've got Jesus, and I've got my friends and my family, and they're bringing me lattes every day, and they never did that when I was healthy, right? <laughs> and then she said, and there's always a bright side, and I said, well, like what? And she said, well, half-price pedicures. I love that. I love that. So a few weeks ago, she had a party to say goodbye to her leg. And the party was filled with all this dark humor. And she told me, she gave me permission to share all this. She said, if you find it amusing, don't feel bad. It was meant to be. So the whole party was leg-themed. So the cake was in the shape of the leg lamp from the movie A Christmas Story. It's amazing, right? The food was chicken legs. One of the Bible verses was, my hope shall not be cut off. My leg will be, but not my hope, right? There were t-shirts that said things like, I've always had a leg up on the competition. And my favorite was, toward the end, they all danced the hokey pokey. You know, put your left leg in, put your left. You know why I love that so much? It's defiant. It is defiant. It is shaking her fist at cancer. Cancer can take my leg, but it can't take my hope, and it can't take my joy. She's refusing a victim mentality. I can't control my circumstances, but I control my attitude. And what, is God, when what God is doing in and through me is more significant than what is happening to me. And she's rejecting counterfeit courage. Oh, it'll be all right. No, no, it's hard. It's bad. But she's relying on Jesus. She said her faith is what gets her through. And she's focused on eternal things like relationships and Jesus. So the loss of an earthly thing like a leg is difficult, but it doesn't undo her. 
And she's realizing the strength she has in her, in friends and family, and that wonderful, wonderful sense of humor. She is saying what David says to Goliath, Cancer, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin and surgery and grief and sorrow and loss, but I come to you against, the, in the, against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty whom you have defied. And you are not bigger than Jesus, and I am not a victim. Do your worst. I am not a victim. I choose Jesus. I choose joy. That's how you slay a giant. So what giants are you facing? And how can you do all of those R's I just talked about so that you can be resilient? Because what is that giant? What is that giant that it should defy the armies of the living God who in Jesus defeated every weapon of this world? And he will come against that giant as the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, and he will strike it down and he will cut off its head. And the whole world will know that there is a God who lives in you and that God is good all the time, all the time. Our God is good. Jesus, thank you for that word. Thank you for that hope. We pray that you would help us to live in that courage, live in that victory in a way that the world knows that you are Lord because of the way you are Lord in us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.